our podcast this week, we celebrate the patriarchy. Wait, what? With Sir Anthony Hopkins and director Florian Zeller of The Father. We're seeking signs of intelligence with Nick Mohammed and David Schwimmer. And we're bringing you a taster of John Krasinski talking about A Quiet Place Part 2. Plus all the usual movie news and nonsense on the only movie podcast that wonders how many trailers Andrew Garfield can appear in in a single week. Hello and welcome to this week's Empire Podcast. I'm Helen O'Hara and in the absence of our beloved leader, I mean, who wrote this? Look, okay, I'm going off script. Chris is away. He deserves a break. We're very thrilled that he's actually having one. We actually had to kick him out the door physically, but he has gone. And in his absence, I'm going to be hosting. And you know what that means? I'm so sorry, guys. There's only three of us. There will be no three-fact structure. What a shame. What What a tragedy. What a pain. But I had a fact this week. Oh, no, I researched for hours and hours and Uh, hours. It was going to be a great one. Oh, what a shame. But never fear. I'm still joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning. You have just heard their voices. We are joined by James Dyer, a man who never got on a bus without taking apart an entire posse of Russian gangsters. Hello, James. Thanks. I, it's been a while since we've referenced the fact that I look like an extra from John Wick 2, so thanks for that. <laughs> that's, uh, that's good. This is an extra from nobody this week. I'm being timely. Oh, yes, that is true. Well, I mean, they're much the same, much. but we'll get on to that later. Hey. <laughs> and we're also joined by Ben Travis, who, to my knowledge, has never beaten up any gangsters on buses, but maybe that's just what he wants me to think. That's my secret identity. I'm hiding in plain sight. I have never been more scared of James than when we went to a promotional thing for uh, the Meg. And there was like one of those arcade punching bag things (laughs) for the Meg. And James hit this thing so damn hard. He got out his like martial arts moves and I was terrified. It was really something. Yes, if you are an inanimate object in my vicinity, then fear me. Otherwise, you're probably fine. Well, that... that good, I guess. Um, I'll try to be animate around you, I guess. So yes, so no three-fact structure this week. What a shame. What a tragedy. Oh, well, how will we cope? You know what? I'm going to be fine. But we do have a question from readers. Now, the first question, I'm going to mention this because I want to give it props for Hutzpah and no props at all for anything else. Uh, At Nick Keith 86 asked, what is an interesting film fact that Chris Hewitt doesn't know? (laughs) So so we're skipping that one. Well, funny you should ask. No, because absolutely not. We don't have time. We've got a hard out. (laughs) Well, as I discussed on my Disney podcast, Disney Versity. There we are. (laughs) It's very good. I've just downloaded the Sleeping Beauty episode, which I'm very excited about because that's the best one. It's such a good one. So good. Um, But no, that is not the question. Uh, The question actually comes from at Felicity Kate, a long term uh, podcast listener. And she asks, if you could make any action movie a musical, what would it be? And explains that I've been consuming a lot of In the Heights and Lin-Manuel Miranda YouTube videos lately, and this just popped into my head. So, action movie turned musical. It's obviously already happened with Predator, but, you know, that would be one supremely good answer. Yeah, see, that's where my brain always goes, those brilliant Schwarzenegger musical things. The Conan one, more than the Predator one, is actually my favourite. And hear the lamentation of the women. I like, see, I really like, if it bleeds we can kill it. I mean, I think that's just, <laughs> it's so catchy. Big props actually to John and Al Kaplan, who are the masterminds behind those uh, Schwarzenegger action musical montage things, mm. uh, which you can find on YouTube, but they are very, very good indeed. I mean, my answer to this question, of course, is none of them, because I do not have the love for <laughs> musical theatre 
that you two have. It's, you for me, it's Les Mis or Go Home. Les Mis or Go Home. That's it. Okay, but okay, but imagine it's going to be essentially Les Mis. Like, imagine it's going to be that. But with wire foo. Yeah, imagine <laughs> Cosette that. Cosette taking on Russian gangsters. I mean, okay, okay, I'm warming to this. You know, do you hear the people sing, singing the songs of angry men? <laughs> angry men. <James>? Angry men. <laughs> angry men. <laughs> well, it felt like you were kind of invoking John Wick then, and that is absolutely one that jumped out to me. Like, that series gets kind of more and more mythical, kind of stranger as it goes on. I can see them going full musical at some point. I would love it. Obviously, you've got to have a... I think the big number in the opening act would be, yeah, I'm thinking I'm back, which is this, like, jubilant <laughs> kind of, I'm back on the scene, I'm ready to, like, punch some people in the face and kill people with pencils and all of that stuff. Oh, there'd be a love song called Daisy to the dog. Yes. Yes, there would. I was going to say, you inbuilt have that kind of sad number because of the whole dog situation and yet i think it's got a narrative you know that could lend itself nicely to a an all singing all dancing presentation i I see a large ensemble piece with a pencil with a fucking pencil and that's a whole you get somebody playing the pencil somebody comes on in a pencil costume and it's (laughs) their them telling their story of their life as a pencil prior to being picked up by john wick and and then you have the final verse Mm. where they're like Going into the eye and into the brain. <laughs> Something like that. Wow. You've, You've got to do a song from the point of view of the pencil. I, I would not have gone there, I'll be honest. I really wouldn't. Uh, I don't usually like giant animate, non-animate objects. You know, I get the James's urge to punch them. Like the Mary Poppins stage musical where they have the toys come to life and like dance around the stage. No, absolutely not. Hard pass. Punch all of those out of the way. Do not want. Thank you. No. So I'm not sure about the pencil, but I am sure about a John Wick musical. That'd be fantastic. What about like Bourne? What about Mission Impossible? Is there a spy musical? Bond is practically a musical at times anyway. If you can have an invisible car, you can have people breaking into song and dance. I I can can certainly see that. that. It has that quality, I think, that would transition well to musical notation. Bourne, I don't know. I don't know, because I, I kind of envisage a kind of a tempo akin to Paul mm. Greengrass's kind of camera style. And frankly, I think it would make me ill. Yeah. I, th- I mean, look, I'll be honest, that one's harder for me to imagine. Uh, a sort of grittier Rent style musical. I don't know, you know. Maybe, Maybe the stage is mel- just shaking the whole time. The whole stage is just on this little vibrating mechanism that anytime there's an action sequence or anytime they're singing, they're also going. <laughs> Maybe it comes from the team behind Stomp and it's just very percussive. Yes, you see, this is working already. Man, Broadway, call us. I know you're back. <laughs> I've seen the Lin-Manuel Miranda advert for it. So, you know, we're here for it. I'm trying to think what else would be good. I mean, I have five words for you. Please bring them. Fast and <gasps> furious. The opera. Oh my God. God. Right. It would be an opera. You're right. It would be an opera because it is so, it's the most operatic cinematic franchise out there. It's crazy family drama that's kind of unintelligible and super complex. And at the same time, you just have to go with the flow, go with the emotion of it. Like I'm imagining Fast 9 is going to tie into that massively when we bring Jacob in, the uh, Dom Toretto's secret brother. Like that, that feels like an opera trope right there. Come on. Mm, um, but, but I mean, are there too many basses, you know, or bassos? Because, right, usually, like, I feel like Vin Diesel's vocal register here, right? Right. That's mm-hmm. usually genuinely where the opera bad guys, that's how you know it's a bad guy in an opera, is somebody who turns up and he's like singing like this. That means he's the bad guy usually. So it might be a bit confusing for seasoned opera goers going to the Fast and Furious <laughs> opera. Yeah. Seems like that Venn diagram's quite small. 
Look, I mean, if there was if there was Anna Nicole Smith, the opera, and Jerry Springer, the opera, there is room for a Fast and Furious opera. This can happen. It's maybe more for the Fast and Furious heads than it is for the opera heads out there. But I, I don't know. And uh, operas are long. You could like cram every single film into one opera and just have it be like the craziest thing of all time. It starts with, obviously, you translate it all into Italian as well. So you have Naturally. people singing in Italian about selling DVD players. And by the end, you've got them singing about attaching rocket boosters to the back of cars oh it would be beautiful that is i mean that is pretty attractive how about a sort of wagnerian take on independence day right so lots of kind of (laughs) ride of the valkyrie style choirs as the alien ships arrive i feel like there's something there i feel a headache coming on already just thinking about (laughs) this as a possibility i just i just don't need that but i do think that i could happily watch endgame put to music i can just see the on your left the portal sequence 100 percent, yes a beautiful sort of i mean thanos obviously has a, a, a just a stunning baritone you can just tell that by looking at him obviously but i think a brilliant kind of anti-heroic soliloquy song for him everything yeah yeah and the, and the sort of verdi-esque chorus as as everyone arrives and avengers assemble it would be called avengers assemble obviously that would be pretty uh pretty epic yeah I mean, what is it that makes a musical, right? It's It has to be well, emotion. Well, okay, it's music, but it's also, it's emotion, isn't it? It's that idea, come on, you've seen Buffy, James, you know, once more with feeling, you know that it's basically when your emotions get too intense that they kind of have to burst out into song. That's that's the kind of rule in in all musicals, is that there has to be some kind of intense emotion that can only be expressed through music, and that makes you sing. So it's the it's the more intense end of the action spectrum. I'm going to be really controversial here. Not quite an action movie, maybe, but a sort of infernal affair is The Departed. There could be there's a lot of like repressed emotions there that you can only express through song. That'd be amazing. Every song, especially if you do the Departed version, it's all bagpipes. Every song is just bagpipes, wall to wall. And at the end, you get the song sung by the little rat that runs across the the window ledge. What, you've been end. watching way too much animation, dude. You're anthropomorphizing <laughs> all over the place. No, but no, but that's what musicals do as well. You get to go into the heads of the characters who are in the background. There's that great song in Groundhog Day, the musical. Oh, yeah. Is it, um, I can't remember the name of it, but playing it, Nancy. Playing Nancy. Playing that's Nancy. it. It's where it goes song. into the uh, into the mind of just yeah a random background character who I think is somebody who kind of fancies um, Phil Connors. No, no, or... she's the one that Phil seduces early on in the musical just because he can and she's pretty. And, and yeah, then she feels like aside. she's stuck cast in this role that she can't break out of, and it's just a one-off, just one song number that just like let's just zone in on this character for a second. So I feel like that's fair game. Okay, I'm still caught up on the Independence Day idea because like end of Act One, your song is welcome to earth and that is will smith punching the alien in the face and because it's will smith you have all the songs in the style of 90s will smith numbers oh whoa. it's all hip-hop it's a hip-hop musical dj jazzy jeff kind of lenses DJ jazzy jeff. Yeah. yes everyone's wearing fluorescent costumes i feel like it should be an actual <laughs> opera but with will smith doing 90s rap in it that's the crossover yes. i want to see daring i like it <laughs> i think this would be amazing look i i, I think it's clear that you know pasek and paul limo mel miranda these guys have had their day, but we're here now. We're going to save Broadway and cinema all at once by turning all of these action movies into operas. This is going to be great, possibly. I, I would go to opening night of all these things, <laughs> mainly because I have nothing better to do. Tell you what else would be good, like slightly different kind of action movie again, a sort of Apollo 13, those kind of rescue movie, disaster movie kind of thing. You could have the kind of, again, the choral elements coming in in NASA. You've got the plaintive songs of the wives left behind and you have the trio in space and you could get a really nice blend of voices. But there, oh, it'd be great. 
and a song from the point of view of the moon watching the rocket come towards him thinking this is the time this is the time i've been watching the earth for mi- millions and millions of years and finally they've sent a message to me you know wow. you get the i want song i want i want people to walk on me exactly and he gets what he wants it's great no he doesn't that's the wrong mission <laughs> oh god do they I they do remember. not land on the moon no they have to watch it go past no so it would be a sort of a, almost a haunting love song, a sort of, sort of somewhere out there from an American tale with with right. both Jim Lovett and the moon singing to each other about how much they want to get together and they just can't. That's what you're envisioning. Exactly. Literal, well, almost literal star-crossed lovers. Moon-crossed lovers. Yeah. It's a thing. And, and the moon, you're thinking a sort of, I don't know, a Georges Méliès voyage to the moon kind of face in a moon shape? The moon from the mighty boosh is what I'm thinking. Right. Cool. Okay, I mean, look, we may have a little bit more workshopping to do, but I feel like it's pretty clear that almost any action movie can and indeed should be a musical. I mean, I was watching Aquaman on the weekend, and to be honest, it's almost already a musical. It just doesn't have any music. But if you turn the sound off, you could absolutely 100% believe that it was some kind of opera with the the flowing undersea hair and the ridiculous costumes. Yes. Yes. It even has Julie Andrews at the end. It even has Julie Andrews already there. It also has an octopus playing the bongos. It does. This it does. thing oh writes God. itself. Yeah, you have like a big octopus drum solo. The, the octopus comes out to the front of the stage. Eight arms, massive, massive drum kit. That would be so good. Spectacle. It still amuses me no end that Aquaman came out in the same Christmas as Mary Poppins Returns, and Julie Andrews was only in one of those films. <laughs> and it was Aquaman, voicing a giant kraken. Yeah, I mean, she has range. I don't know what to tell she you. She does. She really has range. Okay, so which one are we going to go with? Have we got a have we got a preferred answer here? I feel like we're making all of these, are we not? We are? Like, this, Fantastic. This, this, this is what we're doing. There we go. That is the answer. Usually action movies, when the emotion gets too much, they break into fights. We're saying dance fighting. If the bad video can do it and West Side Story can do it. And Jumanji can do it. And Jumanji can do it. Ruby Roundhouse style dance fight. It doesn't all have to be to Baby I Love Your Way, does it? Maybe. That would be a bold idea for a musical where it's just the same song over and over and over. I mean, it could happen. They used Immigrant Song twice in Thor Ragnarok, which could definitely be a musical. It would be an 80s jukebox musical. Do we know if Hemsworth can sing? We'll need to look that up. Our people will talk to his people. It's going to be fine. All right. I think we've probably exhausted that in more detail than it, I don't know, possibly deserved. But there you go. If you would like your question read out on the Empire Podcast and treated with just that same level of in-depth highly intelligent analysis do please get in touch uh, you can email us uh, we're podcast at empireonline.com you can drop us a line on facebook where we're empire magazine but let's be honest the best way to do it is to get in touch on twitter at empire magazine hashtag empire podcast or we might not see it or do look out for chris's usually panicked tweets on a thursday just before we record Okay, so on that note, I think it's time for our first interview. We've got quite a packed show with interviews today. And let's start with, given that we've all been talking about Friends recently because of the reunion, David Schwimmer and Nick Mohammed, the stars and in Mohammed's case, creator and writer of Intelligence, which is returning for a second season on Sky this week. All the episodes are, of course, available on Sky Go, or you can get your weekly fix on the telly. This was a very fun chat about the show with the two of them, recorded before we knew that the Friends reunion was going to air, so there isn't much about that, but there's a little bit of chat. And if you remember a few weeks ago, Chris vowed that he was going to ask an incredible 
incredibly convoluted trick question about that reunion. So this is your chance to find out if he actually did. Please enjoy David Schwimmer and Nick Mohammed. We're delighted to be joined on the Emperor podcast by the stars and, of course, in one case, the creator of Intelligence, uh, Nick Mohammed and David Schwimmer. How are you both? Really Good, well. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> How are very, you? Very well. Uh, where are you both at the moment? East Village, New York, for me. Okay. I'm in and London. Nick? I'm in Richmond in London. Oh, of course, because you have to be close to all things Ted Lasso at the moment, or well, is this well, just where you naturally it's, hang out? It's honestly a complete coincidence, but I live in Richmond and uh, happened to get cast in Ted Lasso. So yeah, which is set in Richmond. So um, it was not by design, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's very beneficial, I must say. Wow. Okay. So, so that helps if you've, you know, you know where something's filming, you just move there and then in time you will be cast. In That's it. why, I mean, in fact, we filmed Intelligence at Twickenham Studios, which is literally 10 minutes walk from, from my house as well. So, you know, I, I, I'm all for just doing jobs which are, are local where I don't have to. <laughs> wow. So are you the laziest actor in Britain? Is that what we're that is, finding? That is basically what I would like to be on my headstone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and David, what about yourself? Obviously, you, you don't live near Twickenham Studios, I presume. So this is more of a commute for you. I presume you commuted every single day, flying back and forth from the States. Yeah, yeah. Which was so easy during um, during the lockdowns. It was just like a breeze. <laughs> um, yeah, no, we filmed, you know, we filmed the last season during, uh, you know, very, very strict and, and you know, obviously... Uh, very well planned out uh, COVID safety regulations and um, guidelines. And I have to say, I was, it, it was, it was kind of amazing to see how the entire crew rose to the occasion and we had no incidents um, that stopped production, uh, not even for a day. Everyone was just took it really seriously and, yeah, just, uh, I was very, I think we were all just really grateful to also be working, you know, at, at such a such a challenging time. So, was there a point at which it seemed in jeopardy? Because I imagine series two was always planned for that that portion of the it year. Got delayed, definitely. We were due to start because we were meant to be starting to film in July, but it was all it was all to do with. I mean, it was, you know, yeah, making it safe. I mean, the guidelines were, were constantly evolving. You know, we didn't know exactly what the insurance issue would be in terms of getting Shrim over and quarantining, you know, how much time we'd have with Shrim. And, you know, there were, there were so many kind of hurdles, but we were like Shrim says, we were just so grateful to be working. And, you know, it's a testament absolutely to that, to that crew and our, you know, our ensemble cast that we, you know, we managed to survive six weeks without, you know, without even a day sort of slipping because of, you know, because of COVID we were very, very fortunate. And is, is that something, because in terms of a comedy, does that impact upon you guys? I mean, <laughs> is it harder to be funny when, you know, you have people going, don't get too close. Don't, don't breathe in that person. Yeah. Was, I, I mean, it was, it was a challenging shoot. Um, for me personally, I was also dealing with a health issue, like an, like an ear thing. So um, I, I was suffering from, uh, hyperacusis and uh, tinnitus or tinnitus, um, depending on <laughs> how you want to pronounce it. Um, so it was, it was, it was tough. And then it's uh, when everyone around you is wearing a mask, um, it's very easy to hide when you don't think something's funny, you know? 
<laughs> so, so it's, you know, you have to trust, you have to trust yourselves and your instincts a, a little more maybe. Um, but listen, everyone was, it was great. And, um, you know, while there were certain new challenges, I think, uh, we're really, really, really pleased with the results. I mean, in some cases, I, I think, and Nick can speak to this better because he's the writer, mm. but I think we outdid ourselves um, uh, from the first season. Um, you know, we all kind of knew our characters better, and I don't know, we fell into like a really great groove. Nick, what can you say about that? Because uh, certainly it feels to me, you know, I've only seen the first two episodes so far of series two, but there's, uh, and this happens quite a lot, I think, with with sitcoms, that second series, second season, you really get that confidence where you know the characters, you know the interplay, you're writing maybe more to the cast's strengths than in the first first time around is that the case absolutely the case yeah i mean you know we we apart from from david obviously and and jane stannis who plays mary who who i had written that part for um you know we cast everybody else and so it was you know we we the, the brilliant 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 actors and uh but you absolutely hit your stride in a second season because you, you're absolutely playing to their, their, their strengths. You know, what dynamics work really well. Uh, you, you just have, you know, I just felt I had more confidence as, as just a writer as well. You know, I was still, you know, it was the first series that I'd written on my own uh, was season one of intelligence. And, you know, it was it sort of, that's daunting to a degree. And uh, you know, in some respects, we possibly would have benefited by having a pilot, but you know, it had gone straight to series, which is you know a, a lovely thing as well. But um, you know, you can't you can't really try things out uh, over a series as easily as you could do in a pilot, and then you sort of reshoot it if you go to series and so on. But you know, I really feel like you know I'm so you know really proud and you know so grateful for you know everyone absolutely stepped up to the mark in in, in season two we all, i mean you know it's fair to say i also had slightly longer to write it because we were due to film in you know whatever june july of, of 2020 and uh in the end that that got pushed to september so actually we weren't really delayed in the grand scheme of things by a huge amount but it just it just allowed for a little bit you know more of okay well let's just have another you know there's there's no excuse for not having these scripts in in tip-top shape because you know uh we've been locked down and uh yeah it, it felt absolutely that everyone rose to the occasion so i'm you know i'm excited for audiences to see that and uh, david did you have anywhere that you wanted uh jerry in particular to go in series two were you uh, were you constantly buzzing nick over zoom going write me a musical number <laughs> Or, you know, make him sexier. <laughs> Do you have a bucket list of stuff? Um, no. I mean, I think, um, you know, I think Nick and I both love physical comedy. And I also kind of love those two characters, like, in a room together, like <laughs> just the two of them. Um, so I think we were just trying to find the right balance of, you know, great, great, plot structure, keep, you know, a lot of action, but physical comedy and trying to maintain, you know, trying to have their relationship grow and evolve, which I think it really does. Um, and dare I say it even becomes moving at times. So um, we'll see, at least to, it was for us. Um, so um, yeah, I think, I think we're, you know, um, I think, I don't know. I think we were just trying to expand the uh, world and their relationship uh, uh, and, and take it to the next level, really. 
So how did you want to develop that dynamic between uh, the, the two of you, this this series? Because it, it already went to some very interesting places in the first series. Well, without yeah, without giving too much away, um, you know, they've we, we've established that these these two these two guys kind of uh, sort of ful- fulfill each other in in ways. You know, Jerry is sort of looking for someone. Who, who will sort of, you know, adore him and praise him because he, he needs that because of his, you know, his inflated ego and no one else buys any of the bullshit <laughs> that he says. Um, and, you know, Joseph loves that he's got this kind of almost older brother figure who he can dote on, you know. So we kind of leave them at that point where they kind of sort of satisfy each other. But then, you know, there is there are just several things again, don't want to kind of spoil anything, but there are a few things that, that, that attempt to disrupt that. And uh, yeah, this, this series sort of just sees how they potentially deal with that. And, um, and yeah, their relationship sort of, you know, you know, their, their bond kind of grows even stronger really as, as a result. And uh, I just want to ask the two of you about this, this, this relationship between the, you know, between the two of you that's gone back a few years now, because I, I know it predates intelligence, uh, to the point where, Nick, you've called David Schwim several times, and uh, that's a, a nickname I clearly do not have authorization to use at this point. I need to get to know you way better than <laughs> for that, David. But, uh, you know, so at what point does Schwim become the nickname of, of choice? So at what point, David, are you comfortable enough with someone to let them call you Schwim? Uh, I guess in f- five more minutes, Chris, and then you can call <laughs> Good. Yeah. Uh, it just doesn't feel, doesn't feel quite right yet, but in about four and a half, four, four minutes, 40 seconds now. That, yeah. <laughs> I didn't do it for a while. And then obviously, and Schwim just started signing his emails and his texts to Schwim. I was like, I'm going to call him Schwim. But I do interchange, you know, occasionally it's David, occasionally it's Schwim. Never Dave, but never, <laughs> never, never go for Dave. No, you're not a Dave. You're either a David or a Schwim. That's 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 the way it is. Yeah. But but David, obviously, you and I go way back. Yeah, because uh, yeah, well, I, I was on set yeah, of Run, run Fat, Fat Boy, Boy Run. run so, yeah. still, Chris, another three minutes forty seconds. All right, three minutes forty seconds. All right, okay. I will I will I will dig- diligently observe that. But uh, <laughs> but in terms of this relationship, can you tell tell me about the the first time you two guys met? Because yeah. it, it it was a moment when you clicked. Yeah, very simply, like Nick uh, had written um, co written this show with Julia Davis. It's an amazing show called Morning Has Broken. I don't know why it's not on the air or wasn't on the air, but it, they shot a pilot, and it's genius, and. Um, I, I, at the time I was, you know, working or was trying to find something with Sony television and those, the execs on Sony television said, Hey, there's this show that we were going to distribute in the U S that we love, that we want to reshoot the pilot. And what they told me was that they're interested in creating a, an American, a new role, an American producer kind of a role. Would you meet with them? It's Julia Davis and Nick Muhammad. And I'm like, I'm a massive Julia Davis fan. I'll do anything <laughs> with her. I didn't know Nick at all, but they, sh- they sent me the pilot and I thought it was hysterical. I thought, it, I, and I thought Nick was brilliant. So I went, I was in London and we all started to work together for, I think we improvised for like three or four days. We were trying to find who this character might be. Uh, Nick was killing me in, in, in our improvs. He was just crushing it. And I, I was so embarrassed. I was so mortified because I, I was corpsing constantly because he was just crushing it. And then I found out much later, I think just 
just like last week, actually. No, I'm kidding. I found out much later that they weren't looking to write a new role. <laughs> they, they, like, like they were just being, they were told, oh, this actor wants to come and maybe be on your show. So anyway, all good. But um, <laughs> so for whatever reason, that didn't happen. Like the pilot wasn't remade, but a friendship was born with Nick and I. And I basically said to him, I said, you're amazing. Anytime you have an idea, just give me a shout, you know, and, 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 and then what, like a year later, Nick or something? Or yeah, but yeah, about a year or so later, yeah. yeah. Nick just emailed me a, like a one-page outline of his idea. I'm like, okay, <laughs> that's, that's brilliant. Let's do it. So, Nick, from your perspective, what was that like? So, you know, David has, has said it as if, you know, this actor has turned up and, uh, you know, is, is, is or sort of gate crashing your rehearsals. Of course, it's not just this actor, it's it, David Schwimmer. It, it, so it, it was, it was absolutely. And, you know, I should say David was crushing it as well. You know, that, that uh, I adore that show. And, you know, maybe one day we'll, 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 we'll make it, you know, it didn't go to series for, for various reasons, but it, you know, as David said, it, it was the sort of start of a, of a friendship. And, um, you know, it wasn't so much that, you know, David wasn't right for the part or something. It was just that, you know, we didn't, we didn't get that series commission in the end. So we kind of, you know, we had nothing to kind of nowhere, nowhere else to go with it. And uh, I think around the mm. time as well, the morning show had been picked up by Apple or was on Apple's slate. And also this time with Alan Partridge, which was a sort of spoofy magazine, you know, obviously I don't need to explain what Alan Partridge is obviously, but, um, um, you know, that we know knew that that was coming around with the BBC. So it, it still feels even now that if we were to do that show at some point again, or try and resurrect it in some way, now wouldn't be the best time. We'd have to sort of wait till the, the sort of tide of those kinds of shows kind of come around again. Um, but yeah. yeah, we just, you know, that we particularly, David and I, we, we quite, we really enjoyed playing with that sort of alpha David playing the alpha brash American sort of, we, we enjoyed the status dynamic between him playing that character and me being this sort of shyer, sort of British guy, quite sort of Machiavellian in Morning is Broken. But um, uh, that was sort of the basis of the Jerry Joseph relationship without the Machiavellian side of, of my character. But uh, yeah, so that was, yeah. We So I knew that if I was to write something and with David in mind, it should tap into that because we had so much fun with that. And uh, yeah. So did you have like a massive whiteboard in your kitchen or your office with things David Schwimmer can be in? As well, you were writing down loads, Milton, spy. I think the key thing had to be, you know, you want to be able to naturally justify why an American is sort of showing up in this sort of, you know, and it was, it was perfect in a way because I'd always wanted to write about GCHQ because I loved the idea of setting a comedy, uh, you know, with these huge stakes of national security. I always found that inherently funny, especially if it was just a bunch of oddballs and it was all about the sort of small talk and, you know, it sort of didn't really focus on the, the big national security stuff so much, but just more on these characters. And uh, it felt completely natural, the idea of an American, especially because at the time I was writing this, Trump was president as well. And, you know, it was all about global shared intelligence and cybercrime was really kind of kicking off. And it felt right, the idea of this bold, brash NSA guy sort of trying to kind of coming in and trying to teach the British sort of how it really should be done. You know, it felt completely right. And then obviously, you know, David was perfect for that. Obviously, you're both in intelligence, but one of you was involved in one of the most beloved sitcoms of all time. And recently you were part of a reunion of that beloved sitcoms cast. 
So I have to ask, how was Ted Lasso season two, Nick? <laughs> well, we're still filming it at the moment uh, and it's a very happy reunion. And uh, yeah, we've got another month or so left on it. It's, uh, I mean, listen, it's an absolutely joyful show. Uh, very different to Intelligence. Um, different writing process. You know, I'm not one of the writers on it, but, you know, it's a writer's room and, you know, a lot, a lot mm. of the writers are in the cast as well. Um, but yeah, similarly joyful and, uh, you know, always such a constructive atmosphere on set. There's always the opportunities to sort of chip in and uh, talk about character and sort of how you might sort of slightly adapt a line and things like that. But yeah, I feel very, very fortunate to be in that, but, you know, to, to have intelligence as well, um, you know, to be working alongside lots of brilliant people, really. David, I, 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 that was a bait and switch. I was it? Was it? I, <laughs> it was. It was complete. But I could see. I could see. I was. I, I was reeling you in. Chris, I saw it coming. <laughs> am I? I uh, tell me, please. Am I the first person to have done that, or no, is, no, no, is no, it just like a, a whole long it. line? You telegraphed it without knowing. Uh, that's okay. <laughs> that's why you do what you do, and we do what we do. Well, it's a podcast. I had to make it larger than life. You <laughs> see, for the folks at home. I was about Chris. I was about to interrupt. In not not having got it, saying, "Oh, you're talking about Ted Lasso as a joke," but actually, turned out you were. <laughs> that's okay, see, I, I, I got it planned. I had it planned all along. That was my big question. I was building up to it, but uh, but David, I, I I should ask. I should ask about the the recent reunion that 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 happened between you guys. How did how did it go? Uh, I'm a fan of Ted Lasso. I mean, I've been um, uh, so I'm psyched for season two. Um, <laughs> Uh, and every, you know, I get daily updates from Nick about yeah. that cast and how it's going. So, um, I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm just looking forward to it. I, I, yeah, I meet you and me both, my friend, you and me both. I think you should be, you should be in it. I can see you being in it. Well, and I, and similarly, yeah. I, I absolutely, well, you know, I can put in a good worship. Uh, similarly, I, I adored being part of the Friends reunion. Um, you know, just great to sit on that couch and, you know, talk, talk yeah. about those 236 episodes that I, I wasn't know. in. You were great, dude. You were <laughs> Thanks, so man. funny. I, th I felt like the other cast were kind of looking at me really weird. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's all good. <laughs> It's all good. Anyway, listen, on that note, I'm going to let you both go. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you both, uh, David Schwim Schwimmer and uh, and Nick. I don't know if I've earned the right to call you by nickname, but if I if I had, what would I be calling you? Uh, Movis. Some of my friends call me Movis, like Hovis, but Movis. Movis? Where's that come from? Oh, gosh, you'd have to ask. Do you know the actor Tim Key? I think he started it out. Yeah. Mavisia, it came. It will be some long, long there'll be very long-winded explanation. I don't even know if I know it. Mavisia, it came from maybe the surname of some. Anyway, they call me Mervis, and occasionally, right, occasionally, occasionally, they call me Mervis Presley. <laughs> Genuinely. <laughs> well, on that note, Schwim, Mervis Presley, it's been a blast. Thanks, Thanks guys. Thanks so Thanks, much, Chris. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Take care. David Schwimmer and Nick Mohammed there, of course. You'll be pleased to know that the second season of Intelligence is reviewed Ugh. on the latest episode of the Pilot TV podcast, available now wherever you get your podcast. There it is. Thank you, James. Well done for sticking to your usual, you know, self, I guess. But it's time now for movie news. None of your TV nonsense, although there probably will be some TV news in there. Movies, I say. Uh, so what is in the news ether this week? 
I mentioned it at the top of the show, but we should perhaps talk about the two Andrew Garfield trailers that dropped this week, uh, both of them for rather interesting looking projects. So just before we started recording, uh, the trailer dropped for Tick, Tick, Boom, which is the uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda directed musical. Oh yeah, who's that? He sounds interesting. Who's this Lin-Manuel Miranda guy? He's an interesting guy. We'll talk a bit more about him next week, I would say, but uh, yeah. Just, just to be clear, because and let's assume for the sake of argument that I know nothing about this and or musical theatre in general. Sure. But this, is this anything to do with the Fresh Prince? It just this is what you say, tick, tick, boom. <laughs> I think boom, shake the room. What is happening? That would be tick, 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 boom. There are like three oh, ticks sorry. in that, I think. More ticks. Yeah, tick, tick, boom is a musical about the life of Jonathan Larson, who is the guy who created Rent. It's written by him. It, I think, unfortunately mirrors his life perhaps more than intended because it is about a musical creator who dies young, which he did uh, just right. before Rent premiered. So it has kind of tragic resonance with his own life. But yes, that's the Andrew Garfield role. Really good cast around him. It has your beloved Bradley Whitford, James. Uh, Vanessa Hudgens is in there. Ale- Alexandra Shipp. Uh, Judith Light, you know, Broadway royalty. So I'm kind of excited to see how this goes. I think it's going to be interesting. And also, of course, it's a brave new world for Lin-Manuel Miranda to conquer. Yeah, I'm fascinated to see what he does as a director, right? Because he his creative mitts are all over In the Heights and Hamilton, but he isn't the director of either of those, either on Broadway mm-hmm. or in their sort of filmic incarnations. So I'm really interested to see what he is like as a director, as somebody who clearly knows musicals inside and out. He is a massive Rent nerd. Uh, when I spoke to him for the In the Heights feature uh, and became his best friend, he was telling me <laughs> that... Hey, uh, <laughs> I spoke to him first. We can be his joint best friends. It's fine. Okay. He was saying that Rent was the musical that really, really like kicked his love of musicals into overdrive because all the classic musicals seem to be set in some far-off time and some far-off land And Rent was a very contemporary musical. It was about the here and now of contemporary New York and the people living in it. And so that really, really captured him. He's been obsessed with Rent for a long time. So the fact that he's making this as his first feature as well, like that feels like a very, very specific, deliberate choice. And yeah, he knows everything about musicals. He makes incredible musicals. So it's Really interesting to me to see what he does with a pre-existing musical, but presenting it in a filmic format. What excited me as well is that with the trailer and the poster that came out for this, it's a Netflix film. It's going to be on Netflix later this year. It said fall. So presumably in a mere couple of months, we might be seeing this. But it also will be in cinemas, which um, I cannot wait to see in the heights in the cinema. I've seen it, but not in the cinema yet musicals for me like seeing them big and loud and with other people is absolutely the way to do that so i was also heartened with that trailer to see that it's going to get a cinematic release as well as being on netflix oh seriously wait until the dolby atmos kicks in on independence day the musical i mean it's going to blow your mind (laughs) oh my god you you could just put tick 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 boom in there As the White House explodes, it's all happening. Oh my God, this is all coming together. We need to call Will Smith right now and get him to like come aboard. Wow. Uh, but that was not, of course, our only Andrew Garfield trailer this week. There's also The Eyes of Tammy Faye, where he plays Jim Backer, who is the husband of Tammy Faye, played by Jessica Chastain. And they were uh, American televangelists in the late 70s, early 1980s, who raised an enormous amount of money in ways that may not have been entirely uh, above board. So that should be an interesting trip through history. I think that's directed by Michael Schwalter, who did things like uh, The Big Sick and Wet Hot American Summer. So I think he'll find an interesting take on televangelism. 
Yeah, the trailer for this looks fun. It looks, it has that slightly kind of Scorsese-ish, David O. Russell-ish sort of famous people telling a kind of crazy, I think 70s, 80s American story. There is a slightly alarming amount of makeup going on in this because you've got Jessica Chastain looking nothing like Jessica Chastain. Um, Andrew Garfield looking a bit more like actual Andrew Garfield, but I think this is going to take place over a major swathe in their lives. So you have them as younger incarnations and going through this major transformation of how they present themselves on screen through their TV televangelist personas and also then into kind of later life and older age. Some of the old age makeup I wasn't I found it even distracting in the trailer, but those guys are both incredible performers. So, and the story of this is something I know basically nothing about. I feel like televangelism isn't massively a thing over here. (laughs) So yeah, I'm excited to sort of dive into that world. Absolutely. Um, All of which is lovely, but none of these things are my news because the thing that excited (laughs) me this week was the fact that Jamie Lee Curtis went onto Twitter and posted a picture. Well, it's a picture, it's a silhouette, but it's also a picture of pretty much the entire core cast of the Borderlands movie. Now, I imagine, Helen, your enthusiasm for this is limited. I'm sorry, I turned off. What were you talking about? (laughs) I am really, really here for this. And yes, like I say, it's more of a silhouette picture, but they look so much like the game characters. I am really, really excited about it. It's got, I mean, look, the cast is amazing. So it's got Kate Blanchett as Lilith is in there. Kevin Hart is in there as Roland. Obviously, Jamie Lee Curtis is in it. Uh, Jack Black is playing Claptrap, the little robot droid thing who's hilarious. I just, yeah. What is it? Is it sci is it horror? Well, there's a, there are a series of video games, Borderlands video games. It's very, very over-the-top, stupid, funny nonsense. Ooh, I like over-the-top so, and stupid, funny nonsense. It, it is all of those things. It doesn't take itself at all seriously. And I think, actually, for a video game adaptation, that might ultimately be the key here. That it just makes so much fun of itself and it's very self-referential. So this this could be an absolute blast, a hoot, all of these things. And I, I very much want to see it. And this, this, is, this has made me want to see it more. I'm intrigued by the fact that, as you say, the silhouettes, they look like the video game characters who mm. are very stylized. Yes, so I was like, they are. like, what the fuck is this film going to look like? What, yeah, I know. What are these, how are they going to do these character designs and make them look sort of photoreal, but also make them look like the game? Usually they just kind of humanize it a bit more and make it not look as much like the game. But, with but this then one, you lose that not taking itself too seriously thing. I think that's the problem. You take something really stylized and you make it real and all of the fun immediately goes away. I wonder whether you need that visual palette to work alongside the sort of wacky humor in Borderland. But I mean, look, it could be an absolute car crash, but I'm I'm very excited to see it. Yeah, fair enough. Borderlands. Okay, I'm aboard. I mean, I, I can hardly reject it with those people involved. But I am more excited about another adaptation, and that is the news that there is a new Master and Commander in development. Is it on the far side of the world? No, because you see, this would be based on the first book in Patrick O'Brien's series, thanks very much, which is kind of about how Captain Jack Aubrey meets Dr. Maturin, wasn't it? Was the Paul Bettany character? Yeah, look, I love that film. If you've seen the Russell Crowe, Paul Bettany, 2003 Peter Weir film, it's freaking incredible it should have had like 16 sequels and won a million oscars it's criminally overlooked really that sort of um you know when the ship comes out of the mist oh my god battle in the mist the cannon fire and stuff that is splinters in the air splinters and things coming out of the fog oh it's great 
It's incredible. If you haven't seen Master and Commander, see Master and Commander immediately. But this is the news. So far, all we know is that uh, Patrick Ness, who is, of course, the novelist and writer who behind The Monster Calls, uh, Chaos mm. Walking, don't hold that against him, and the film isn't his fault, uh, and many more great, great books, is apparently on the adaptation. So it's probably going to be based on the first one in the series. So it will be a prequel. It won't be those guys coming back unless they have a some A prequel de-aging. where they're all 20 years older. <laughs> Yeah, that would be weird. I mean, I, I'm, mm. honestly, I'd take it because I think they were great casting. But yeah, unless they, they use a lot of de-aging technology, that seems unlikely. But yeah, they were so good in those roles, though. So, you know, anyway, I just hope it happens. I hope this goes ahead. Um, I hope Pacific is as blue as my dreams. <laughs> but I, I don't think they went to the Pacific in this one. But, you know, I, I just hope. So Well, somewhere on the far that. side of the world, yes. Yes, exactly. Um, can we talk about Kingpin, please? Like, sure. Mainly because Chris isn't here. And I feel like this is news that obviously I don't give a shit about, but this is clearly something that I think would light up Chris's little face, that Kingpin is getting a sequel and the Farrellys are coming back to do it. That would make him happy, I think. You're right. I've never had a a huge amount of love for Kingpin. I sort of appreciate that it happened and I I seem to remember some good jokes, but, eh, you know, but people love it. So, yeah. There is only room for one bowling film in my life and it's The Big Lebowski, unfortunately. So, Oh, well, I mean, that's obviously the better bowling film. Yeah. But, I mean, look, if Bill Murray and so on come back, then that's got to be a good thing, right? I mean, we don't know anything. We don't know who's coming up. We don't know if anyone, we don't even know if Woody Harrelson's coming back. We know absolutely nothing uh, except that the Farrellys are looking to do it. They're on board to at least produce, if not direct, but we'll see. All right, fingers crossed. Have we discussed the Batman logo flash blood thingy? That happened very no. late last week. I think it was after last week's podcast was already recorded. It was, yeah. Uh, Andy Muschietti, who is currently filming the Flash movie, put a an image on his Instagram, which was the Michael Keaton Batman symbol from, I think it's from Batman Returns rather than from the original Batman. Nerd. Um, but very much that like <laughs> distinctive, the, sort of the yellow oval with the black bat in the middle with a Watchmen-esque sort of little blood splatter on it, which... Kind of, I mean, I'm sure Batman gets blood on him when he beats people up, but it just it just sends me straight back to the Snyderverse. Mm-hmm. Mean Batman beating the shit out of people and branding people and going a bit OTT. So that that got me slightly worried, but it got a lot of excitement, understandably. Mm. The the fact that like Keaton is coming back for this is still nuts. There there are like so many Batman out there. We're at peak Batman at the moment. We were at peak Spider-Man a few years ago, huh. uh, but now there may be too many Batman. Um, but yeah, just really exciting that um, that Keaton somewhere is back in that suit. I mean, I was I thought maybe we were meant to be worried for Keaton rather than for the people he's fighting. Right, that would make more sense. I kind of read it as I think that's just because we've been so associated recently with Batman being like a hard edged dude who punches people in the face with no remorse, um, which I guess he sometimes is. But yeah. oh yeah, poor Keaton Batman. Then maybe he's yeah, maybe. in in some trouble. Needs some help from a speedy little guy well no you mentioned that we were at peak spider-man and and that we've moved past that stage so it's probably a good time to to mention the news that isa ray has joined the cast of the sequel to spider-man into the spider-verse where she will be jessica drew slash spider woman so there you go if you were short on spider-man they're back in the game challenging the batman i know nothing about spider-woman as a character but isa ray like that is a very exciting bit of casting she is awesome just knowing how funny she is and how great the casting was in the first spider-verse how kind of unexpected some of those castings were and how you can get people who will give these really really great vocal performances but also be able to keep up with the the comedy stuff going on there that is a great bit of casting yeah no she's i mean she's a good character as well she's a kind of a a slightly 
cooler and more kind of growing up version, obviously, than than Spider Gwen. So she's um yeah, she's a good she's a good character for her to play as well. I think I'm I'm interested to see what they do with her. But yeah, so many Spider-Men. I always get the urge to sing the song from Kimmy Schmidt, but I'm not gonna. I'm gonna show some <laughs> restraint and self-respect. But you know it's a what? Very, very musical podcast this week, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so we're talking prequels, we're talking sequels, we're talking multiverses, but you know what I haven't seen so far this episode? A sequel to a prequel. <laughs> of a film that was has already been remade and had a sequel to that remake happen. So it was you... itself an adaptation of a novel yeah. with an absolutely batshit insane sequel, which... That uh... sounds like Cruella and Unusual Punishment. Hey, that's right. Cruella 2, I guess. Tuella? Tuella. Tuella. Yeah. Cruella to Ella. Yeah, she's uh, back, 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 potentially. And um, apparently they are considering a sequel with the director Craig Gillespie and co-writer Tony McNamara expected to return and presumably also Emma Stone if they throw some more sacks of cash at her. Uh, I mean, she still hasn't, you know, gotten into making coats out of Dalmatians yet. So presumably there's a bit more room to play with. And they have, of course, set up the couple, the the Pongo mm. and uh, what's her name? Pongo and Perdita, Perdita. owners. Um, last time, so they have something there to work with. That's exciting. They've sown some seeds. I mean, I would hope, I'd be really excited if Craig Gillespie came back because so much of what made Cruella really, really great and and kind of very surprising was how much of a sense of style and energy that it had. I think he really brought that. Emma Stone coming back would be great. you got to give her again good people to play off. Mm. She had, that again was a major part of the first one. But I hope that they, if they do another one, they don't get too bogged down in trying to do 101 Dalmatians. Because one of the things I really liked about Cruella is that compared to Maleficent, where it was like, oh, we're going to tell a Maleficent story, but oh, I guess we should still tell the story of Sleeping Beauty, but tell it in like a weird, different way, which kind of it just didn't work for me. With Cruella, it's like, look, it's just its own thing. It's set in the 70s, but it's a prequel for this character and it's kind of a different version of it. And we can just do what we want. It's just a cool film based around a potential origin for this iconic character. And I think the more you continue that narrative, the more you could potentially get caught up in having to try and tell a particular story and tweak bits of it and turn bits of it. So, oh, maybe this person's a bit more sympathetic. And I just don't really want that. But give me more Emma Stone, Cruella, maybe send her into the 80s, going full like new romantic after all of the punk stuff. And the first Cruella could be a lot of fun. Yeah, but at the same time, like I would like more Kevin Novak and Kirby Howell Baptiste, uh, who were, of course, uh, Anita and Roger in this one. So it would kind of, it would be okay if there's a little bit of Dalmatianiness from them. But um, but yeah, I think you're probably right. I think uh, this character makes no sense uh, as the Cruella we saw in the movie, in the original movie. So it wouldn't make sense to rush into that, I suppose. Anywho, also in exciting news, Kerry Mulligan and Zoe Kazan are going to uh, play the reporters who broke the Harvey Weinstein story in She Said, uh, which is, of course, based on... Megan Toohey and Jodie Cantor's book about that uh, groundbreaking investigation. So that's interesting. And I hope that that goes well. They seem like very, very good casting for the roles. There was also a rumour, I mean, it's been minutes and minutes since we talked about the MCU. There was a rumour that Tenoch Huerta is going to play Namor in the Black Panther sequel. Say what? I mean, this character's been rumoured for quite a while, right? There was some mm. kind of reference, was it in Infinity War? Or was it even at the end of Black Panther that was like something about the oceans? And... There was there was a reference in the beginning of Endgame to an undersea earthquake. 
of no major importance. And Okoye basically hand-waved it when Black Widow asked about it. People were like, Namor? Question mark. And everybody else was kind of like, mm, just probably. No, it's the whales in the Hudson. How do whales cause earthquakes? Because there's so many of them now. Yeah, there's loads. There's too many of them. <laughs> They're all crammed in the Hudson. It's causing an earthquake. Uh, That's course. how geography works. Okay. Remind me not to have you teach geography anytime soon. Cool, I guess. Um, Namor is, uh, how do I put this, a dick, usually, in the comics? Yes. <laughs> like, yes. the worst. So, yes. you know, he makes Aquaman look, you know, warm and cuddly. I, I'm not sure I'm thrilled to see him, but maybe they'll do something really interesting with him, I guess. Mm. Winged winged ankles and speedos is a look. That's all I'm saying. I mean, but you're carrying it off beautifully, James. So Thank you. Thank you, Helen. <laughs> Especially when you wear it in teal, your favourite <laughs> colour. I um, do. Oh, what what is why is that character so widely tied to Black Panther and Wakanda? If his thing is, I mean, oceans are worldwide. So why why does that character tend to get lumped in with the uh, with that sort of specific corner of the MCU? Do you know? I don't know that he really does. He's been part of the sort of Illuminati with um, Professor X, Reed Richards, Doctor Strange. I think Tony Stark, who take upon themselves a role of kind of overseeing the whole world. But yeah, he's had some tangles with Black Panther. I guess maybe just because they're both secretive monarchies with, you know, strange traditions, I think. But generally speaking, the Wakandans are slightly more enlightened, I would say, than the Atlanteans in Marvel's universe. So I don't know. It could be cool. Like the MCU have done interesting things with non-promising characters before. So fingers crossed this will be one of those times. A couple more things to mention before we get into the very exciting news of the new issue of Empire. John Wick, number four, has added Bill Skarsgård to the roster, presumably reckoning that only it can really challenge John Wick at this point. Who are you going to send against the bogeyman but the bogeyman? John Wick versus Pennywise. He's going to get killed in an extraordinarily violent way. And I, for one, celebrate that fact. Wow, I hear he says nothing but nice things about you. And speaking of Stephen King, um, Brian Fuller is apparently going to adapt Stephen King's Christine, which is the killer car movie. So I can't say it's my top five Stephen Kings, but you know. Hmm. Yeah, obviously we've had Christine before, famously the film in which someone takes a shit on a car with dashboard, which is, you know, important. But um, I don't know, I'd be interested to see what he does with that. As somebody who generally is here for all of the new Stephen King stuff, I've like never read any Stephen King, but <gasps> I've enjoyed. You? No, I've never read any oh, of them. I kind of don't know where to start, and then they're so long. Um, oh, they're and, so good though. And it's kind of the the the, the mythology so densely tied in with all the other things. But I've loved so 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 many of the recent adaptations. So I'm generally here for all of them. Mm. I really love John Carpenter's Christine. It's like it gets the tone so right. It kind of has that that darker element to it but it's playful and kind of crazy and because it's of its time it's all sort of practical effects and just this evil car like driving around and the soundtrack is amazing so this is one where i'm for the first time i feel what people probably felt when they've mm. announced i don't know when they did pet cemetery again and stuff and going like oh no but like the original one's really good or whatever it's very old school stephen king mm. though isn't it like in the, it's very it's a very simple idea very sort of straightforwardly executed whereas you look at something like lisey's story uh, which was recently adapted by apple which we reviewed on the pilot tv podcast oh, and it is extremely dense and baffling and deranged and batshit and all of those stuff uh, and even the outsider had an awful lot of moving parts to it which i enjoyed mm. a great deal outsider was so good yeah it was very very good indeed so yeah yeah, like this, this will almost feel a bit like a, a palate cleanser. It'll feel quite purist. Yeah, and, and actually, you know the way I always complain about the fact that films make environmentalists the bad guys? 
at least making cars the bad guys, I think, is actually not a bad thing you to do. You don't know. You don't know. It could be a hybrid. It could be an electric car that goes rogue. <laughs> oh, no. You don't know that it's polluting. <laughs> it's it's going to happen. It's, it's going to be a Tesla. A Tesla gone rogue. Oh, my God. That would be the most depressing thing. Actually, I mean, I'd be okay with a Tesla specifically going rogue because, like, Elon Musk is the worst, <laughs> but... Yeah, no, that's not going to happen. It's going to be a rogue AI, isn't it, in a Tesla? It's going to be it's going to be a, a car that Dean Winchester would quite like to drive, but you know, but not actually the Impala. So I'm I'm okay with it. It's going to be a big old American muscle car. It has to be. It, it isn't Christine if it's a Tesla. Come on. Speaking of Dean Winchester, Helen, you have not mentioned the fact that a picture of him as Soldier Boy appeared on the internet this week that's in true. season three of The Boys. Yes, he will be playing. So Soldier Boy is a kind of well, his exact origin is a little murky. I don't know if that's a spoiler to get into, but he's kind of meant to be a Captain America esque character mm. the wrinkle being he's a massive coward like a massive coward and he has some insalubrious history with uh with the homelander as well and he leads a group called the pack who are the kind of beta team to the alphas of the seven so i'll be honest i'm you know obviously thrilled to see him do anything and i'm genuinely thrilled for the world to discover that jen snackles is actually a very good actor and can do a lot and i feel mm. like he's you know, he genuinely is going to explode now that he's yeah. out of Supernatural and, and has a bit more time in his schedule. So I'm really, really excited for people to see him. I am very, very worried that his head is going to explode because that's what happens to people in The Boys. Everybody, like every episode, <laughs> someone or something explodes yeah. in a really gory or grotesque manner. It stands to reason that will probably happen to him at some point. And the only question is whether it comes as a relief when it does because he's playing a character mm. who's so awful. Like that's the only big question. And the only thing will be left of him is his nipples. I just, I mean, again, you can't see the nipples in that suit. Like, there's a lot of guarding around the nipple area. This is standard. Well, because they must be protected at all costs. Oh, boy. Helen, I've seen the outfit. It's a relatively open weave, and you can still see his nippular areas. I mean, you're really looking, James. Wow. How do you feel about the fact that he's playing a Captain America-esque character, and mm. he has a bit of a beard going on? Mm. Is that giving you sort of Infinity War feels again? I'm, I'm having some really confused feelings about the, the sort of combination of these two ingredients. Yeah, I'm going to have to work through them at some length and, and look at that picture quite a bit more. But like I say, my, my overriding feeling here is concern, is terror for what's going to happen to him in this. Yeah, just to finish off on Christine, by the way, you've got to read some Stephen King. He is one of the great writers of Americana. Like he is a fantastic, fantastic writer. Carrie is short. You could read that. Start with Carrie. Salem's Lot's probably my favourite as a book, or The Stand is bloody fantastic. So, Stand would be would be a hardcore entry point for I mean, Stephen King. I'm just saying, just because it's a little bit long, it's fine. Oh, a little, <laughs> a little bit long. He's not See, a concise writer at the best of times, but The Stand is something. Yeah, as, as somebody who um, <laughs> generally listens to audiobooks of things, I think I looked at The Stand and it was like 50 hours, and I was it's like, like yeah, maybe not this one. I'm not saying it's. I'm not saying I didn't mention that as his first one, did I? No, I was easing him in gently with. <laughs> carry which is a very realistic length but the stand is better i'm just saying yeah except if you have watched the recent adaptation of the stand you might not feel quite so warm towards it well um i'm not i haven't watched that have I? i'm just i'm saying the book is great look um, trust me the book is great read the book yeah anywho yeah. none of this news really matters because there is much bigger news isn't there yes and that news is new empire day it is yes the british new wave issue is on your local newsstand right now Four amazing collectible covers with some of the most exciting British talent working today. You've got Bucky Batcray, Kingsley Benadir, uh, Emerald Fennell, Riz Ahmed on the covers. Inside, there are 26 brand new interviews 
loads of really great new photo shoots with people. You've got Rose Glass, Chopin Dirisu, uh, Waruchi Opia, Olivia Cook, Rob Savage, Remy Weeks. I spoke to Remy Weeks for this. Uh, if you haven't seen his house, oh my God, watch oh that already. God, yeah. It's so great. Oli Alexander, it's, it's stacked with all of these amazing uh, talents, both in front of and behind the camera, who just feel like this amazing new generation coming through and creating amazing stuff in the UK and out in the rest of the world as well, in, in Hollywood and beyond. So it's a massive celebration of all of that. Also inside, there is Chris's uh, Loki feature, speaking to Tom Hiddleston and Kevin Feige and Kate Heron and Michael Waldron, all about that. Also, a plug within a plug, the Loki spoiler specials have begun. If you want to hear, well, for the first week, uh, James sadly wasn't with us. Uh, he didn't die. He is back. <laughs> he but did Helen, die and he's back. Yeah, he's like Chev Chelios. He was dead, but he got better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> James, James Dyer, high voltage. Uh, anyway, that's a digression within a plug within a plug. Uh, <laughs> but yes, the Loki spoiler specials have begun. The first one is out now if you're a subscriber to the spoiler special podcast. Mm. So the first episode is uh, myself and Chris and Helen and Amon talking about Loki episode one. There's going to be new episodes every Thursday, obviously. Loki is hitting Disney Plus on Wednesdays. Our podcasts are out on Thursdays, so do subscribe and check those out. But yes, there is a Loki feature in the magazine. We have a feature written by Emma Seligman, who is the writer-director of Shiver Baby, which we're going to be reviewing very shortly. That's her kind of account of getting that film made and why she had to make it. Uh, we also have a feature talking to Florian Zeller, the writer-director of The Father, which we'll also be reviewing pretty soon talking about making that film that obviously won Anthony Hopkins the Oscar. So there is tons and tons and tons of stuff in the magazine. It's out now. Find it on your local newsstands. Also, you can order it online at great magazines. Go find it. Read about all these super exciting people who are making the best things in Empire. Including Jessica Yuli Henwick, who I spoke to about The Matrix 4. Oh my Ooh. God. Do you, do you mm. guys keep having that moment where it hits you again that The Matrix 4 is real, it exists, and it's supposed to be coming out in December, and I like I feel like my brain is going to explode. Is it real, what, Ben? Is it real? What is, it is real? The Matrix? If it's in a simulation, I will happily go into that simulation and enjoy it over a delicious, juicy steak. <laughs> wow. I mean, okay, but look out for agents, because that sounds kind of dangerous. Um, but I mean, man, so that is a good point. Like, The Matrix 4... And Dune in one year. This is this is catnip for us sci-fi nerds. It's it's pretty exciting times. Speaking of sci-fi, just one more thing before we uh, before we move on from news. There was news about Jurassic World Dominion this week as well. Tell us about that. Yes. So as if anybody needed more of an excuse to go and see Fast and Furious Nine in the IMAX when it comes out, because that is a film to be seen on the biggest, loudest screen possible. If you go and see that in IMAX, you're also going to see a five-minute preview of Jurassic World Dominion. And our very own Nick Dissemblian has seen that preview and he spoke to Colin Trevorrow all about it. And you can read about that on empireonline.com. He talked to him about, well, it seems like that preview clip is set 65 million years ago. Mm. So it's like a bit of a look at what's going to be coming in Jurassic World Dominion, but also something very, very different for the Jurassic World, I want to say. And... Yeah, it's going to be a five-minute clip of Jurassic. That's super exciting to me. I mean, I, I love those films. Jurassic Park is my all-time mm. fave. I was already well in the can for Fast and Furious 9, especially seeing it big and loud. Yes, that is an extra incentive if ever you needed one. Unfortunately, he does say that he doesn't want to speak about the proposed Fast and Furious Jurassic crossover because reality is just not as much fun, which is not the answer I think we all wanted to hear. 
but um, no, I wanted him to say that's clean and rad and powerful <laughs> and happening most of all happening <laughs> that would be amazing but yeah that is probably it for movie news the big takeaway I think is that uh, lots of people are being cast in things but more importantly the new empire is out and you should go and buy it and the new empire spoilers are out for Loki and you should go and subscribe to them so that is big news uh, we also of course have another interview to come. And this is one that I did with Chris. I spoke to Florian Zeller, uh, previously mentioned, uh, the esteemed French playwright turned director with The Father, which is an adaptation of his play adapted by Christopher Hampton and starring Anthony Hopkins. He really wanted Anthony Hopkins to star in this to the extent that he changed the character's name from Andre to Anthony as as part of his campaign to convince the actor to take part. And you can hear a little bit more from them in that. Now, it's mostly me asking the questions here but Chris does come in at the end uh, because he couldn't resist because the uh, conversation turns to a film called The Edge, which you will have heard Chris quote on this podcast <laughs> ad nauseum and something a little magical happens. So please enjoy this chat with Florian Zeller and Sir Anthony Hopkins. I'm delighted that we're joined here today on the Empire podcast by Florian Zeller and Sir Anthony Hopkins. Hello, how are you doing? Very good. Hello, very good. Hello. Um, it, it must seem like, a, you know, you've been doing interviews about this film now for, for quite some time, obviously a slightly delayed UK release, but um, are you, is it still fresh in your minds? Have you forgotten it all and moved on in your lives? No, I haven't forgotten at all. It's, um, <laughs> look, it's great nostalgia back to that year, um, 2019, wasn't it? Wow, it's a long time ago. And um, oh, Those were the days. I remember it so clearly. One of the best times of my life. So, I mean, I'm going to start from sort of the beginning. You know, um, what was it like for you, first of all, Anthony, to, to read this disorienting script? You know, it's a, it's a it's a story where your character is is essentially at sea for for large parts of the of the story. Well, it was uh, it was um, I, it came out of the blue. My agent called me and said, "Would you read a script called The Father?" And I wasn't sure if he meant by Strindberg, Strindberg's father. Play and I said, no, he said Florian Zeller. Okay, and I knew about the play in New York and England, um, although I didn't know the play itself. And then, so I read the script. It was Christopher Hampton's adaptation of it, and it was uh, um, any words an actor never trust what an actor says, but it was quite a, a stunning shock, really, because it was so clear. And one of those scripts, you say yes, yes, yes. Mm. And I had the same experience with Silence of the Lambs script and with um, Remains of the Day. And, but those are the rare scripts. And I said, yes, I'd love to do it. And we, we met, Florian and I met a few days later. He and Christopher came over to Los Angeles and we went to a hotel and we had breakfast. And um, I knew it was, yes. The funny thing was it made me a bit nervous because it was so simple. It was so easy as it fell into my lap and I'm meeting with with Florian and Christopher, and I thought, well, these are very nice guys, and uh, I hope it works out. Then my agent joined us for breakfast and said, Do you do have the, the two popes to make the film of Jonathan Price in January. <laughs> oh, okay. I said, yes, I know, I, that's wonderful. And I thought, I wonder if Florian will wait for me. Because, you know, The Father's a, um, a, um, an independent film, not a vast Hollywood budget. And I, I said, would you wait? And Florian said, yes, of course, we'll wait. And uh, I said, oh, well, I hope so. And so I'm <laughs> checking. So the following months, uh, I said, yes, it's okay. And then 
I, you know, I think there was, maybe I'm wrong, but I think there was a moment when they're trying to get the finances in part, Torin knows more about than I did. And then Olivia Coleman came along and she, in fact, she got the Oscars. Yeah. <laughs> so I phoned Torin and every, every, for my engineers, I said, that, that, that's good. It's good. That is good. Yeah, this is a. I mean, this is a good problem to have. It's like, oh no, I can't make the father yet. I've got to make the two popes. That's that's amazing. <laughs> I mean, uh, Florian, I know that you know you'd you'd written it with with Anthony in mind, so and even put his name in the script uh, literally. So, what was your feeling at that breakfast meeting and at, at that first interview? You know, there, I'm French, as you can hear, and the only reason why I made the decision to make that film in English was to be to try to approach Anthony. So it was something very important to me. And so now I can tell you, Anthony, I would have, I would have wait more, more years than you would have thought, <laughs> because, you know, if it was not with Anthony, I'm not certain that I would have done that film. Mm -hmm. To me, it was completely connected. The desire to make that film and the desire to do it with Anthony, because I had this conviction that he would be extraordinarily powerful in this part. And uh, because, you know, to me, at least, Anthony Hopkins <laughs> was, uh, you know, this man always in control of the situation, the language. And, and I thought that it would be so disturbing to see that man precisely losing the control. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, it's hard to tell why you have such a strong desire, but uh, you don't have to question it. It was like an intuition and a desire. And to me, he's the greatest. Sorry to say that in front of you, Tony, but to me, he's the greatest living actor. And so I would have waited years and years. <laughs> <laughs> so to answer your question, no, I, I was focused for that uh, breakfast. But as Anthony said, it was like a normal conversation about, you know, what is your vision, what, how we can do that. And uh, it was clear to me that it would be almost easy to work together because Anthony is very humble as an actor, meaning that he's not here to serve himself. He's here to serve the story, the emotions and the vision. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, it was, it, it was the, the, the beginning of a process of a conversation and uh, one of the most intense journey of my whole life. That's amazing. The, the film was extraordinary to me. I remember the first time I watched it, it feels like uh, on one hand, a very small, intimate family drama, uh, but it's almost played like a horror movie. You know, these things, this, these disorienting things keep happening. People keep popping up and claiming they're not who they say they are. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a fascinating, fascinating approach to the character. I, I don't know if that, is that something that you talked about? Is that something I'm just making up or, or is that how it felt to you? You know, at first, it was the idea of the father to put the audience in a unique position, you know, as if you were going through a labyrinth, as if you were questioning everything about what is real, what is not real, as if in a way you were in Anthony's head. Uh, so I wanted the father to be not only a story about a man losing his bearings, but to be like an experience mm. of what it could be, what it could be to, or what it could mean to lose everything, including your own bearings as a viewer. So it, it was about playing with that feeling of disorientation uh, of the audience in order to, again, to, to make people experience, uh, you know, this uh, disease. Yeah. Is that how it felt to you, Anthony? It, it, it felt very simple. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's odd because I can't remember the details now, except I read the script and I thought it was so, so unique and perfect, really. 
and I started learning it. That's my method, is just to learn the text. And what is good about script of this nature is that it's like a roadmap. You just follow the roadmap. And um, it was so clear, you know, it's just clear. No, I, I know this sounds a bit to try to maybe falsely modest, but no acting required because all you do is follow the science, the mathematics of it. And I, I'm, I'm a little obsessive about that. You know the language, know the lines, and it's obvious you don't have to act up a storm for it uh, because it's it's there in the when she says, um, I say to to, to um, Olivia Coleman, and I said, it's all right. Why why do you keep looking at me like that? I'm all right. You know, that's how it's written. I'm all right. Well, of course, you know, I know enough about my own mind to say, I'm all right, leaving alone. I don't need any help, you know. <laughs> so, but that's all that's required. You don't have to search for it, you know, in a Stanislavski method way. Um, I'm no dismissing that at all, but uh -huh. uh, so it makes it easy. And then having such superb actors, um, wow, it's, uh, as they say in America, it's a walk in the park. It's easy, easy. And, uh, and, you know, I didn't, for example, people say, but well, you know, just the set had changed every so often, it would change color. But I didn't notice that. I mean, I, I knew it was happening, but I didn't preoccupy myself with that because uh, I let the audience do the work. I think the trick of acting is let the audience do the work and don't push them, don't explain to the audience, let them do the work for you. Mm -hmm. And you just yeah. deliver the line. I don't know how simple that is, but it's um, it's a, a way I've developed because I'm older now. I'm an old man, and I've learned a few tricks, you know. But uh, by working with this script and working with Olivia Coleman, Olivia Williams, Mijin Poots, and Aisha Dark, and uh, uh, um, Matt Gaddis, and um, everyone, Rufus uh, yeah. it, it, it was so easy. It's just easy. I mean, when, yeah, they were wonderful actors. Did you um, film chronologically then to sort of have that progression, you know, the sets changing, you know, the people around you changing, or, or did you have to jump back and forth a little bit? We had to make this kind of, uh, it was not done on purpose, but uh, we were not able to, to shoot completely chrono in chronological order. But, uh, and, and the narrative is not linear. So, you know, uh, we were going through ourselves like a labyrinth. But I like what Anthony just said about letting the audience uh, do the job. This is something that is important to me to to leave a room to the audience so that they are in an active position. You know, they are not just sitting watching a story already told. They are part of the narrative. They are questioning everything, trying to make it work, trying to make it meaningful. And that's, I think, uh, something that was really important for that film to, in a way, to ask the audience to to be in this active position, you know, as if, as if the film was like a puzzle and they have to try to play with all the pieces of that puzzle to try to find the combination that could work, that could be meaningful. Of course, there is no, no, I mean, it's not possible to have like a definitive combination that works entirely because there is always a piece of that puzzle that is missing and it's done on purpose so that you are, you keep trying to, you know, to, to fight against, uh, what looks like meaningless and this is what i was looking for yeah i mean you you've talked in the past florian about people you know coming up to you after seeing the play and relating it to their own lives relating it to to experiences they've had people they've met is that something that's continued you know through reactions to the film that that you you've both had from people 
Yes, the film just released in France, and I'm so moved to tell you the truth uh, with all the messages that, that I'm receiving every day. Because, you know, making a film, it would be pointless if it was not to, for that moment when you share things with the audience, when, when you share emotions. That's why, you know, this moment that we have been waiting for for months and months when theater uh, will be able to reopen in the UK is so important for us and we are so delighted that now we can share that film yeah. with the audience at least <laughs> yeah. yeah finally, <laughs> finally <yes. laughs> and it, it i mean it genuinely does feel like a film that will benefit from being in theaters i've obviously had to see it on on a screener at home you know during lockdown but I, I genuinely can't wait to go back and see it in a cinema because i feel like watching it with other people because of that unease that mystery that problem solving you know i think audiences are really going to re react to that and want to kind of be part of it together mm. can i ask a question because I, i've been out, out of the loop for so long when you go to the theater in in france or um in, in america um now do you all have to sit far apart a couple of seats apart here in the uk oh, anyway yeah, yeah. Before you go in? no tests but masks so Mm, it is it, it it is weird but what is very surprising at least in france is despite the restriction in terms of capacity despite the mask despite the curfew that it's still here in france people are willing to go to cinemas and to share this collective experience because this is something that is so meaningful to to make you feel you know part of something bigger than yourself this is only only cinema can provide this kind of deep feeling. Absolutely. Uh, just a, a slight aside, but uh, Florin, did you have a favorite Anthony Hopkins performance before this film? Uh, can I tell the truth? <laughs> Go ahead, please. <laughs> no, I'm not objective. Uh, the favorite Anthony Hopkins, uh, to me, it's the father because, uh, <laughs> because, you know, making a film, it's also, um, it's an affective journey. It's an emotional journey. So, you know, I, I shared that with Anthony. So I feel completely, you know, emotionally connected with him through this part. But, uh, you know, to me, Remains of the Days is such a masterpiece. Um, so many films. Yeah. Absolutely. I should say now, um, Chris, my my colleague there, who's who's listening on the line, would kill me if I didn't ask uh, Anthony about uh, the edge which is a film that gets quoted basically weekly on the Empire podcast. Really? Wow. Really, not kidding. I mean, we love, don't get me wrong, we love The Remains of the Day, we love Silence of the Lambs, we love many, many of your films, but The Edge, what one man can do, another can do. That's it, yes. That comes up so often. Do you have fond memories of that film? I, I do. It was um, a painful memory. I had an impacted disc in my neck. And oh, the, the first few weeks, I, it was hard to work, and it was Alec Baldwin. Save my, save me! I couldn't move one day. He said, "You're going, going into hospital." And I went into hospital in Calgary, and I had this little piece of impacted herniated disc removed. And I was back in work within a few days. But uh, that, that was a David Mamet script originally. You know, it was so we didn't mess with it. It was um, it, very much like Florence, formalistic and very clear. And David Mamet writes very clearly. He do, he doesn't um he doesn't show up on the set. He doesn't monitor his script but he writes it and um and it was um it was working with alec baldwin that uh, made the day because he's such a great actor such a generous man 
And uh, he he stopped me being crippled because I could have been crippled if I'd gone on. Yeah. I'd have to go into the lake and all that, and I had this herniated disc. So I went to the hospital, and uh, they operated, and uh, I wanted to go back to work next morning. They said, no, 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 rest. And But I've, I've been right as rain. Now, that was over, over 20 years ago, and I have Alec Baldwin to thank for that. But it was a great movie to do and a great cast and the great bear. Bart, he's dead now, unfortunately, he did, and his owner. Um, he died as well, but but it was no. wonderful. It was a, t- a tough film to make in a way. It was very cold, but you know, filming is fun. I enjoy it. It's never hardship. No matter yeah. how cold it is, that was the only problem I had was my neck problem. But, oh, fair enough. But I had a great. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad it's um, received such a had had such an impact. What was, what was the line? What man? One man. What one man can do, another can do. Another can do. Yes. Yes. I can't say it as well as you can, I'll be honest, but yeah. (laughs) Clearly, there's something to be said for working with playwrights. Um, (laughs) I'm just going to jump in here at the end to say uh, to to Anthony Hopkins, thank you for answering that question about the edge. Um, I I quote that line pretty much every week on the Empire podcast. I, 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 I may even do it in an approximation of your voice. I am not going to try and do that now for you, but it is... Oh, don't do it to me. Now. <laughs> he, does. he does. He does. No, do it, Chris. All You've right. Got to do okay. It this one. is one to tick off the old bucket list, but here we go. <clears throat> what one man could do, another could do. <laughs> what one man could do, another could do. Say with me, Bob. Say with me. What one man could do, another could do. How did they do? How did they do? <laughs> oh, yes. That's wonderful. <laughs> Why speak like that, really? What one man could do, another could do. <laughs> Oh, the master, the master has done it. The master has entered oh, the chat. If I speak like that, oh God, I better watch, I better watch myself. I'm not even sure what accent <laughs> I'm doing, to be, to be quite frank. But, uh, but, but you're, you yourself, you're, you're a bit of a mimic, aren't you? So I just do Richard Burton. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler than the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Or to take arms against the sea of troubles and by opposing end them to die, to sleep no more. That's my book. That's amazing. <laughs> Florian, don't worry, I'm not going to put you on the spot. I'm not going to ask if you do an impression <laughs> of Sir Anthony Hopkins. But uh, right back at the beginning of the interview, you, you said that this was one of the best experiences of your life. And given that the subject matter is so heavy, was it, was it uh, important to you both to have uh, a, a set that was light on its feet, a set that wasn't mired in, in darkness? Oh, no, it was the opposite. It was very mild, easygoing, and a wonderful cast of actors. And I think when, you know, you, you, you make it as easy as possible for yourself and uh, don't dwell in the darkness. I mean, I'm, you know, if people want to agonize over acting, that's fine, that's up to them, but I can't do that because it's a waste of, for me, it's a waste of energy. But the subject itself is enough, and I think the more uh, at ease you are with it, whether you're playing Hamlet or King Lear, whatever it is, or, or Florence film, um, just relax and let the author, let the writing do it for you. Let the writing, let the theme, this story unfold and let the audience do the work. Uh, of course, you have to be in a, you know, I'm an experienced actor, so I know how to relax, but you have to be relaxed in order to play anything, you know, whether it's King Lear or whatever it is. Uh, you have to be relaxed because otherwise you, you block the emotions. The more relaxed you are, 
the freer you are, you can improvise with it, and the emotions and all the feelings will come up. I mean, Olivia Coleman is an example of it. I mean, she would just have to look at her and <laughs> burst into tears. And it, you know, the scenes that when she actually breaks down in the face of my cruelty, um, I felt guilty. I thought, God, I mean, because she, you could see the agony, the pain in her face. She's a supreme actor, you know. And um, that's what the old Stanislavski said, relax, you can't do anything unless you relax and you go with the flow of it. That was Konstantin Stanislavski said that. It, it's to be truthful and be ready and, again, be relaxed and calm. And then you're open to inspiration then. And what's next for you both? Have you got an, another film lined up at the moment? Yes, I'm working on, on, on another film, which is uh, also the adaptation of one of my plays uh, called The Sun, and I'm planning to, to shoot it uh, over the summer. Fantastic. Yes. That's yes. an amazing play. Yes, I hope. <laughs> and how about you, um, Anthony? Have you got something um, else lined up? Uh, so it's about, actually, I'm, I'm, in the, I'm in the film with, with the film, The Sun, I'm playing about it. Also, um, that, when is it? October. And I'm doing another one called but, but, uh, uh, James Gray called um, Armageddon. And I'm playing Customato, who trained Mike Tyson in January. Oh, That's a tough one to do. <laughs> yeah, wow. Good luck with all of them. This one's amazing. Can't wait. You've been busy. We like it. We like it. And uh, and before we let you go, we should congratulate you both on on winning Oscars recently as well. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you for that. And once again, thank you for letting me impersonate Anthony Hopkins in front of Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> this is... That was a good one. Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> you should do a remake. Oh, God. Don't encourage him, please. Uh, don't I encourage can only him. play the bear. Oh, well, I'm going to do anyone to do. There we go. That is it. Bucket list ticked. Thank you very much indeed to you both, Anthony and Florian. Thank you. Okay, so that was Sir Anthony Hopkins and Florian Zeller and the greatest moment of Chris Hewitt's <laughs> life to date. Uh, I think it, it's fair to say. Um, but let's talk about this week's films. Uh, we'll get to The Father in a minute. We're going to start off, I think, with a film that has inspired all of our screen names on Squadcast today. And that is Bob Odenkirk in Nobody. James, tell us more. So this is a weird fucking film. And the reason it's a weird fucking film is because it's written by Derek Kolstad. It involves David Leach and it features a man who was a killer but is now a family man and yet goes back to his old life after a break-in goes horribly wrong. And if this sounds a lot like it's the plot of John Wick coming from the people who made John Wick, then that is almost exactly what this is until you see the film. What I kind of like about this this sort of subgenre of sort of vigilante justice is you have very much a sort of spectrum where on the one end of the spectrum you've got Taken, which takes itself incredibly seriously. And then somewhere in the middle you've got John Wick, who's very much in on the joke. Now, if there is another end to this spectrum, it's where nobody resides, which is a film that has its tongue so far in its cheek, I can't even tell you. This stars Bob Odenkirk as Hutch Mansell, and he is this sort of family man. He's living at home. He's not estranged from his wife, but let's just say the passion has gone out of their marriage. You know, he forgets to put the rubbish out. He tries to get his kids ready for school. And then one day, a couple of people break in uh, and try to steal some stuff. He confronts them, and it doesn't go particularly well for him. <laughs> he decides not to, shall we say, engage with them when they break in. And this causes something of a crisis for him. And then as we gradually go to understand, he had a previous 
life uh, where violence was very much his language of choice. And he gradually eases himself back into this life, taking on the Russian mob in the process. This is a really, really violent film. It's an incredibly bloody film, but it's not John Wick in the way that it's incredibly precisely choreographed, balletic sort of kung fu. There's a lot of sort of like slugging it out. Like he's ruthlessly efficient. His One of the first big action sequences, him on a bus with a bunch of sort of rowdy ne'er-do-wells. And it's absolutely punishing. And he gets battered as much as they do, albeit there are a group of them. But it's incredibly sort of like crunching and sort of like visceral and painful watching it happen. And you're watching this guy and it's Bob Odenkirk. Like this is Saul, Saul Goodman. Like he totally inhabits the schlubby character. But it takes a while for you to realize who the man underneath is. And I think that's part of this this film's uh, genius. It's brilliantly directed by Ilya Schuller, who did Hardcore Henry. And I found this an enormous, enormous amount of fun. And I didn't really know what to expect going in. Like, it's a tight, it's like 91 minutes. It's a really tightly paced film. And it has a very nice sense of humor that kind of runs throughout. And I think for me, that's that's what does it. Like, it, it made me laugh. Mm. It, it was very much sending itself up, sending its genre up. He has so much fun. He's almost at one point goofing at the camera. Not quite, but he's just, he's just a fraction, like a hair away from doing it. And I think Odenkirk, you know, who we know as his character, who we know really as Saul Goodman more than anything else, I think he shifts gears perfectly in this. Mm. He shifts gears from one character to another character and then lands somewhere in between as this kind of like slightly long-suffering, slightly eye-rolling, but completely deadly former government-employed killer. And this film, as a result, as a result of him, I think it works perfectly. I think with another piece of casting, I don't know quite how this lands, but I think his piece of casting nails the tone, which is action, which is bloody violence, but also with a sort of real, real thread of comedy in it as well. But uh, I like this an awful lot. Chris reviewed this and he gave it four stars, which I endorse entirely. Yeah, I do too. I think this is immense, immense fun. And I think that, you know, I think Odenkirk was, was involved in kind of coming up with this almost, wasn't he? Because he, I think, experienced a home invasion himself. And and sort of had a similar kind of crisis of I don't know masculinity or something uh, as a result. So it has this kind of real root of insecurity or, or you know self doubt, and then it just devolves into complete fantasy in an amazing, mm. amazing way. It doesn't hang together quite as neatly as a John Wick, you know, in the sense that there's a very notable shift from his world to the world he ends up in in a way that John Wick never quite had. It always felt a little bit smoother to me, but I still had just immense immense fun with this and the action scenes are really really well done and there are some characters who become important as the film goes on who are delightful characters and like i really really hope there is a sequel to this and it does well enough to justify a sequel because i would like to see these people do more in future yeah i i enjoyed this a lot i don't think i enjoyed it quite as much as you guys i think i was maybe more on the three three and a half ends for this one i think there are so many echoes of john wick especially the first john wick that it it's kind of, I found that quite distracting at times because it's literally this ordinary guy in a kind of domestic life who battles Russian gangsters who intrude on his very thinly veiled badassness. So it's it's very, very, very similar. And for me, I kind of like, I mean, I prefer John Wick 2 and 3 to the first one. If you like that real stripped down first John Wick, then I think you'll like this a lot because it has a lot in common with that. I think it's great that it's 90 minutes. But for me, there were times where this, it's kind of sprightly. And at the same time, there's very little plot, but quite a lot of story at points that uh, I kind of thought it maybe got a bit bogged down getting from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, as this whole situation escalates. 
But that said, the final act is amazing and totally worth it and loads and loads of fun. As Helen said, certain characters become quite important in the final reel and watching all of that play out was a real blast. There are moments in this as well, similar to John Wick, where it goes from being like, oof, to like, ouch, to oh my god, this is this is almost like something you'd see in a horror movie, but presented as an action beat, kind of with a comedic twist. There is a moment with a windpipe that, <laughs> oh, no, 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 um, was quite a lot to take. Uh, so it definitely skews slightly towards that kind of, especially the second couple of John Wick films and like, oh, not quite as intense as The Raid, but you know, you're watching bits of The Raid like through your fingers mm. going, ouch, oh my God, uh, has that to it. So yeah, if you are going to watch this, just be be warned mm. that it has some ouchy, ouchy, ouchy Yes, there's a bit involving a martini glass, which ouchy. will not make me look at those drinks the same way again. No, they don't. It's not a spoiler to say they don't just sit and enjoy a nice martini. Yes. With Neither glasses. shaken nor stirred in this yeah. case. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just envisaging an ouchy scale of action movies. This would it's be amazing. It's pretty high up there at points. Yeah, yeah. How does it rate on it out of five ouchies? Um, I'd say four, four and a half, because the Raid mm. 2, the hammer scene in the Raid 2 is like five out of five mm. ouchies. Uh, what else? The nail in a quiet place. Uh, I'd say that's a four. Oh, that's a big ouchie for me. I, this is making us all sound extremely grown up and tough, I must say. But uh, yes, uh, so there we have it. Four stars for nobody, but four and a half ouchies <laughs> out of five. So be aware, people. Next up, uh, we have we mentioned Emma Seligman earlier on the podcast and her debut film, Shiva Baby, is out this week. Ben, what can you tell us? So this is James Dyer's Worst Nightmare, which is a comedy that is about <laughs> intense anxiety. Yeah. So this is a film about uh, Danielle, who is a 22-year-old Jewish woman played by Rachel Sennett, who at the start of the film, we see her in a sexual encounter that it quickly becomes clear is transactional. She is, for want of a better word, a sugar baby. And her sugar daddy is a guy called Max, played by Danny DeFerrari. We see those guys together at the start of the film. She has to dash off because she has a prior engagement, which is a shiver, which is a, a sort of Jewish wake. So the funeral service has already happened and all the family and friends are gathering at a house to kind of gather and eat food and talk about family. And especially for her, she's going to be probed with all these questions of what are you doing with your life? How's college going? What are you doing after college? What, what's going on? So she enters this already quite stressful situation and then very quickly bumps into Max, her sugar daddy, at the shiver, and also bumps into her ex-girlfriend, and intense awkwardness ensues for about 75 minutes. So this is a super, super tight film. It's like 77 minutes with credits, and it plucks maximum tension from every single one of those minutes, and orchestrates these really, really uncomfortable interactions soundtracked by the most nerve shredding music i think we'll hear all year it's like a string soundtrack <laughs> that is just it's literally like they're plucking your nerves um, with every single kind of plinky plonky moment and it's sort of very funny and very very well done and also completely discomforting to watch because you're just seeing this character's life sort of threatening to collide and fall apart at any moment and I think it does a really, really good job of putting you in her shoes, of her point of view, of what she's experiencing. Like I said, the intense anxiety comes across in the performance, the way the camera's moving around her, the way the score contributes to that. And 
it's often shot like almost like a cult horror film. It's almost got like a Rosemary's Baby thing of like, you know, the way that the, the neighbors are shot in this kind of really uncanny way to make you feel like they're all kind of looming over you and, and kind of really mm-hmm. peering into the camera. That's how this film is shot. It's a comedy that looks and feels like a horror movie. It's really strange. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like that before, but it's so, so effective. Yeah, it's it's really good. And I think it, it marks Seligman in particular as somebody really, really to watch in future. And also like really good um, supporting cast. So the, the ex-girlfriends played by Molly Gordon from Booksmart. You've got Fred Melamed, because if you can have Fred Melamed, then do. Jackie Hoffman, Diana Agron who, you know, I thought was a bit of a revelation here. I have never seen her do anything this sharp and this kind of effective really since, you know, being the mean girl in Glee, I guess. But she is absolutely fantastic here as, uh, well, I won't say too much, but anyway, she just adding to the embarrassment, adding to the sense of inadequacy and just dialing up the tension throughout. I thought she was fantastic. It's tight. It doesn't overstay its welcome and it is incredibly effective, this. So we gave this four stars so that is a very much a recommendation for shiva baby and that's on movie and i think in cinemas as well it right? was only in cinemas on wednesday so it's it, yeah i think now the only way you can watch it is on movie and that brings us to the father so this is the as we said the new film from florian zeller who wrote the original play in french and has then translated it with the help of christopher hampton into english it's about an older man anthony played by anthony hopkins who is kind of pottering around his very nice London flat. But his life becomes more and more unsettled and and even just terrible and terrifying because things keep shifting on him. One minute his daughter is Olivia Colman and the next minute there's a complete stranger who looks more like Olivia Williams claiming to be his daughter. People come and go with no rhyme or reason. One minute his daughter's partner looks like Rufus Sewell, the next minute it's Mark Gatiss. Like, you know... Colours and objects and things keep shifting in the flat, keep moving out of place. His watch has gone missing and he doesn't trust that his new nurse hasn't stolen it. You know, there's something going on, there's something wrong, there's something weird. And, you know, if Shiva Baby was kind of social anxiety as a horror film, this is essentially Alzheimer's as a horror film. This puts you absolutely in his mind of a person with developing dementia, someone who has been, you know, extremely independent, extremely tough, extremely intelligent all his life and whose mind is now betraying him and having him almost turn on the people around him and and, and question their loyalties and their motives. And it is just phenomenally, phenomenally well done. And Anthony Hopkins, I mean, you've got to love him. In that interview, he, he just talked about this essentially being an easy job because it's a good script, it's a good director, it's a cast who know what they're doing. He just knows how to do it. He said he kind of just turned up and did it. But I mean, my God, if you can turn up and do this, I have to say, you know, watching this film, you're like, I think he was right to win the Oscar over Chadwick Boseman. As much as we all love Chadwick Boseman, as, as you know, good as his performance was in My Rainey, this is next level stuff. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal turn from Anthony Hopkins. And I love as well that even though Zeller is adapting a play and might be tempted to, you know, add in loads of outdoor scenes and, and sort of take it out and, and try and, you know, give us a huge canvas... He's used cinema the other way. He's used cinema to go in close on people, to dial up the tension on people, and also to keep the focus in this flat pretty much the entire time, but still keep things shifting, keep things unsure, keep things unsteady, and build up, you know, real worry and tension and, and insecurity and, and just unease that way. I think it's it's a really, really impressive piece of filmmaking. 
I think it's really interesting that in the Empire review of this, Nick was comparing it to Memento in the way that it takes Mm. you and puts you inside the mindset of a character whose mind is kind of unreliable in that way. I thought that was a really interesting comparison. Yeah, that's a it's a very good call. I mean, because it is an unreliable narrator again, but you are absolutely in it with Anthony, and so you're sitting there going, "Well, what? Who are these people, and and what is going on?" And you realise fairly quickly, obviously, that it's it's a problem with him, that it is an illness that he has. But even then, you still don't quite understand who's who and what's what and what's happening because you're so focused in his perception. And I think that's the really, really clever thing here. So yeah, five stars for the father. And for my money, it's really worth everyone. It's it's a phenomenal, phenomenal piece. Okay, so that's it for the reviews section. Just before we finish, we're going to give you a tiny taster of our recent interview with John Krasinski for A Quiet Place Part 2. Now, this interview is available in full obviously in the Quiet Place Part 2 spoiler special, which is on our spoiler special channel, which you can subscribe for the low, low price of $2.99 a month. At empireonline.com slash spoiler specials. Uh, It is a spoiler interview. So if you have not seen A Quiet Place Part 2, please do skip the next 10 minutes or so of John Krasinski. There will be spoilers, but we thought we'd just give you a little bit of a snippet here to kind of whet your appetite if you have seen it. You can get a little bit of a taste of what you're in for. But he is fascinating, obviously, on the film that he co-wrote and directed and appears in in a flashback. So please enjoy John Krasinski on A Quiet Place Part 2. We're delighted to be joined on this very special A Quiet Place Part 2 spoiler special by the film's writer, director and special guest star, Mr. John Krasinski. How are you? I'm doing great now. After an introduction like that, how can you not be great? <laughs> I know, right? I mean, I have to focus, first of all, on the special guest star part, because... Well... Right away... I feel special. <laughs> and John Krasinski. Right away, there you are. You, you begin the movie with this fantastic prologue, taking us back to day one. There is Lee, alive and well. Why did you start the movie in that way? Because my actor ego was furious that I killed myself in the first one. No, no, I'm kidding. That's not at all. Not at all. Um, It was actually the first thing I wrote was the flashback to day one. And the reason being is the first movie, um, I gave very little information about where these creatures came from, what was going on, um, how this all happened. And I did that very purposefully. And the reason why was I thought it would be much more tense Um, And you would be living with the characters, figuring out what's going on as they are figuring it out. And I thought if I gave you all the information, you somehow would disconnect from the characters because you'd say, come on, this is what happened. Why aren't you getting it? You're you're taking too long to get it. Mm. So on the second movie, I knew I wanted to give a bit more information, but parse it out in the way that we've been doing the movies, which is very organic and almost put you in the moment. I wanted you to feel like you were in this uh, in the movie with us. Um, I remember certainly uh, my influences for the opening of the movie were was Children of Men. Um, I thought uh, Alfonso in, in Children of Men did such an unbelievable job, whether it was the cafe scene where Clive comes out and then the cafe blows up right b- b- behind him, or certainly the car scene, which, of course, we based our car scene on and, mm. and sort of took inspiration from his. It, it was, to me, this idea of not only showing what happened when the creatures got there, but also making sure that the world got to see this family in this town in a happy place, that there was a community of people that lived their lives in a very happy uh, environment and were there for each other and had each other's backs in a very organic way just before the whole world turns upside down and they scatter into the wind and then become, you know, a lot more distrustful. 
And there's there's a number of interesting things about it. There's uh, there's the little nod to the space shuttle toy that obviously is going to be very important uh, down the line. I, I love that. Thank that, you. That's just a little little filmmaker gag for yourself <laughs> as well, I guess. No, I love. I mean, I love the Easter egg stuff and the people who pick up on it. Is my you know one of my favorite things was somebody said on the first one. I love that the only things left in the pharmacy were the bags of chips because they make too many, too much noise. And I put that in super nerd. Like I was like, Oh my God, look at this. This is the only thing that makes noise. And when people pick that up, it's my favorite thing. So the fact that you, you know, you picked up on the spaceship, it's um, I love that stuff. And certainly the, the great filmmakers that I draw inspiration from do stuff like that all the time. That's one of the things I love about both these movies. You're so good at uh, setting stuff up and paying it off down the line. And there's the the moment at the baseball game. This is basically just me, you know, kissing your ass for for, for thirty minutes, John. If you're okay I with that, I will take it. <laughs> it's long distance, but I'll make it work somehow. And uh, there's that moment at the baseball game where Emmett and Reagan have their conversation about the sign for dive, and. I first time around, I thought, oh, that might be useful. That might come in handy later on. Uh, how much fun do you have or how challenging is it as a writer director to seed those little moments to the movie and then almost make them look like they're thrown away? So it's just a conversation between Emmett and Reagan and, and Lee at that point. That's the thing is, and it's, it's really um, exciting. That one actually <clears throat> was a perfect example of we had already shot most of the movie and uh, I, I, I knew that there would, that the dive moment we, we had just, we were about to shoot, uh, on the docks with Killian. And I thought, oh my God, I can set it up in the, in the baseball game. As soon as I realized that, you know, you slide into home plate and he can just say dive. And when you come up with it, it's almost like you're, you're setting these things up just before you pay them off in the shooting of the movie, but it just strengthens the story so much. And so I, and to your point about making them feel subtle, I find that's the only way to do it. I think if you hammer people on the head and they see it coming, then they're going to be looking for it. Mm-hmm. But if you subconsciously incept them, as uh, Chris Nolan has taught us, <laughs> if you can incept them, then, uh, then I think that's, that's the, that's the most fun. And yeah, it's slightly emotionally manipulative because I'm definitely setting you up just to rip your heart out later. But um it, it's 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 my favorite part of uh, filmmaking, certainly genre in particular. So that's interesting. So you so you were about to shoot it on the docks with with Killian, and then you went back and reshot that section, or you added in a, a no. Day? The baseball was coming later, so it's it's one okay. of those things where as the movie, it's almost like when you write the movie, and a lot of the other Easter eggs were in there, but that was one of the Easter eggs that as you're you know the movie goes from being a script to you know a shoot, but then becomes just almost like osmosis becomes a part of you and you start living and breathing it. And so your brain is only thinking about that stuff. And so that was a setup and payoff that we thought of, I think a couple of weeks before we shot the docs, I realized I can do this in, in baseball and baseball was the last thing we shot because we had to shave Killian Murphy's beautiful beard. <laughs> Very sad day indeed. Which by the way, I've actually heard people get outraged that I gave him a beard and they were like, you do not cover up that face. Do you understand me? And I'm like, okay, okay, geez, geez. And then I remember I put the scarf on him in that scene that's in the trailer. And I remember people were initially outraged, like, because, I mean, boy, is his fan club huge. They were outraged (laughs) because I was covering his face until they saw that all they could see were the beautiful blue eyes. And I was like, see, you giveth and you take away. (laughs) You giveth and you take away. (laughs) 
Uh, Emmett, of course, is the the big addition to the to the cast here, and uh, he's constantly compared, especially by Reagan, all the way through to to Lee, of course. And he's a very very different character. He has very very different pressures on his shoulders. Um, and casting Killian Murphy is very interesting as well because Killian's played heroes in the past, of course, but he is also known for playing villains, and he can he has that sort of he can have that cold blooded streak. Those eyes can turn very icy blue. And at a certain point, you seem to be leading the audience down the path of he might be the person to worry about, but he's not. Um, can you talk about was that always a plan with him? Was that always a plan that he would he would be the solid guy who would come through in the end for for Reagan? Absolutely. So what I was really the the bigger where it started was the bigger theme of community. This idea of obviously what we just went through this past year is a perfect example. When you go through the darkest moments in life, there is a tendency to become more individualistic because that feels safer in a way. And weirdly, it feels more bold to try to be a part of a community um, because that would be putting yourself out there and, um, you know, in many ways, make you selfless, which could be dangerous. And I, I love that dichotomy of a discussion of what would you do in real life? And, and, and neither side is really wrong. If you went through this alien killing world, I can, I can understand both sides of it. So I had written this morally ambiguous character who very clearly hadn't decided where he stood on that issue and then is thrust into being with this family. And I always knew that that would be a difficult thing. It's a difficult thing for any actor to pull off. Certainly, I, I, I don't know if I could have pulled it off, but I knew that Killian Murphy, for me, is one of our greatest actors we have. And always I've felt that all the way back to, you know, when the shakes the barley and things like that. I mean, uh, and probably earlier in his career. Mm. But I knew that if he could do this, I, I would be so lucky to have him. And then I sent him an email. I always try to reach out to people directly first. And he wrote an email back and he said, this is so weird. But the only time I've ever done this in my career was after A Quiet Place 1, I asked my agent if he could get me your email because I wanted to write you an email. And he was starting to feel very silly about it. Um, and I said, well, isn't it good you didn't see it, send that email? And he said, why? And I said, because I think you were just a kiss ass. And I wouldn't give you this role. <laughs> and he laughed. But it's one of those things where it was sort of kismet. The fact that he loved the movie and wanted to be a part of it in some way. And I was writing a part, meanwhile, that I hoped he would be a part of the movie. And boy, does he fold into the movie so well. Not only being a fan of the movie, but in the cast, it, you know, it's certainly a very strong foursome that's now a threesome of, of actors who you really care about and introducing someone else I knew would be a challenge, but someone as good as Killian just jumps right in. All right. And that is it for this week's Empire podcast. Join us next week for more film related fun when we will be joined by Reese Shearsmith and only Jimmy Schmitz. That's right. President Santos yes. is going to be here with us. Very, very exciting. Greatest of days. It really is. Of course, he will be here in his guise as a resident of Washington Heights in New York. But, you know, we all know he's President Santos, really. And he does. We did bring up the West Wing in that interview. I was part of that interview. There's uh, a little bit of West Wing in there, potentially a little bit of Star Wars in there as well. Uh, so all the good stuff with Jimmy Smits. And In the Heights. Good God, In oh. the Heights. Oh, In the mm -hmm. Heights. Mm -hmm. <gasps> so good. Anyway, we'll be talking about that next week. But spoiler, musicals. Yes. Okay, until then, until that auspicious occasion, until we meet again, until Chris is back from eating enormous five-star meals at a secret location, it is goodbye from Squadcast name Somebody. 
Ben Travis. Goodbye. I'm going to go and uh, write my Fast and Furious opera. That's going to fuel me for the next, I was going to say week, but I think maybe 10 years would do it. I think so. Uh, as long as there's like 16 numbers all titled family, I think you'll I'm be I'm going to be surrounded by bottles of Corona, <laughs> huffing exhaust fumes from, uh, from NOS canisters. It's going to be wild. Never huff exhaust fumes, Ben. I know you're a young millennial, but it's frowned upon. <laughs> and on that note, it's goodbye from Better Kill Soul, James Dyer. Bye. And it's goodbye from me, Finding Nemo. Because you see, Nemo means nobody in Latin, I, you know, like in Odysseus. I see what you did there, Helen. I see that what you did there. The most Helen thing ever. It really is. <laughs> it's a joke in Latin. <laughs> You've gone full Bartlett. I mean, look, I'm underappreciated in my own time. Somebody out there is laughing, okay? Anyway, until then, thanks all for listening. I am off to pitch the Wolverine musical to Marvel because if anything can get Hugh Jackman back into that role, that's it. Oh.